look at another psalm. We are growing nearer and nearer to the ending of the psalm. Last, psalms last week we looked at Psalm 145, and tonight we move just one psalm ahead to 146. When I preached last Sunday, I suggested to you that that 145th psalm sort of really sets a tone as it teaches about a, a pattern for our praising of God. And then after we read that psalm, the five psalms that follow it are in a way that pattern for praise being lived out, being carried out. And each of the last five psalms in the Bible, including this psalm, Psalm 146, we find that each one begins with the same words. In English, they begin, praise the Lord. And everything that follows is uh, telling us uh, how we should praise. It's all related to our praising of him. That's the way each of these psalms also ends, by praising the Lord. You know, if you were to transliterate the original Hebrew that we translate into praise the Lord, you would get words that sort of sound like hallelujah or hallelujah. And so if you ever wondered, not knowing precisely what it means when you're in a church and you hear someone say that or when we all together sing it, now you know. We are singing of our praise of the Lord, praise the Lord. Now, because these last five psalms begin with that word praise, halal in the Hebrew, they are also known as halal psalms. And we've seen a series of these types of psalms before in the book of Psalms. And so, again, this is just really another series. The book of Psalms ends with this one more grouping. It's a grouping of, of praises. So let's praise the Lord tonight, hallelujah, by reading this psalm. Psalm 146, we'll pray and then we'll read it. So let's pray once again. Our Father, as we come to this uh, psalm about praise, we ask that it would instill in us hearts of praise. We pray, as we always do, Lord, that your word would affect us, that it would change us, that it would um, make it so that we live in... Um, a more thoughtful way to your glory. And so, Lord, as we come to this psalm tonight, we ask that you would guide us through it, guide us through each word, help us to understand rightly, and help us to see what we need to know concerning you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, once again, it's Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God who made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked... He brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. 
The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. One of the uh, things that I do when I preach through one of the Psalms is often to try to look for patterns or groupings of similarities in what the psalmist is saying in order to present the psalm to you in an orderly and understandable way. But as you might expect, the psalms themselves, being inspired by God, are often their own best pattern. Whatever I do in my presentation, I hope is helpful. But in the end, it seems often that it's usually best to just walk our way through the psalm. We walk through it in its own order, and that's best, and we'll do that again tonight. But I do want to offer this first note, this one first note, and to point out to you the similarity that exists in the words that begin the psalm and the words that end it. As I said before, it begins and it ends with praise the Lord. And because of those capstones, well, then we're not surprised at all to know that what lies between is a full array of praises and reasons to praise our God. The psalm begins with a call to praise the Lord, and you see that uh, call uh, initially made, but also completed in the first four verses. The call, begins, the call really begins in a general way as one that is being spoken to all, but then the psalmist very soon transitions to express the call in a more personal way. He does that by calling for the praise to come to his very own soul. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And then immediately following that, he, the psalmist, responds in a way to his own call. I mentioned the use of personal pronouns in the psalms last week, and here the response of the psalmist to his own call for praise begins with the pronoun I. He is saying, I will. I will praise. And the praise he professes he will do and is ongoing. He will praise God as long as he lives, as long as he has his being. But the psalmist also seems to know that in order to better praise God, it is necessary to abandon a humanist approach to the world. To see God as man's hope means that dependence upon the powers of man must in fact grow less. And so the psalmist sings of not trusting in princes or a son of man. Son of man in the context of the psalm is referring to a mere human being. The leaders of the world, after all, are not eternal. They will themselves perish to an earthly doom, as will all men, all women. Though leaders of nations, though, uh, though leaders of armies, they really don't bring the sense of safety and security that we most need. They never will provide a true salvation. That can only come from God. This God is a God who gives life and a God who takes life away. God, though, does grant eternity to some, salvation to some, and he leaves others then to perish in their own sin. And so in this affirmation of the psalmist in which he says, he will praise he also begins to expound upon the character of God so that we might all see what makes him so praiseworthy. Now, before we move on in our walk through the psalm, I think we should think about this in the world as we know it today. We who are Christians know that more and more in this Western world, in this society, it is becoming a, a place that is frequently placing trust in countries and in governments. Man is becoming 
exceedingly prone to place his trust in himself. Not all that many years ago, I saw the movie Interstellar. If you haven't seen it, I won't be destroying the ending for you, but not long after I saw the movie, I read an article that was written by a pastor that I know who had seen it as well. And he said of this movie that it presented a chronicle of hope through the indomitable spirit, human spirit. He was describing the movie by saying that in it, it was not exactly presenting a Christian worldview, but presented in it was this uplifting sort of humanism, which was, at least in our world, a nice change of pace. Well, all that might well be true, but after seeing the movie, I was ambivalent as to my feelings about it. It was suspenseful and on some levels exciting as it presented that plot about a world facing a needed rescue and how man had come up and took the reins. But I think that really kept me from embracing the message of the movie wholeheartedly because it was so bent on conveying a message that man's hope was ultimately in man. And really that sentiment is a sentiment in our world that's not just a movie. In many ways, it's a, a trending way of thought, maybe a prevailing way of thought. It's almost as if, as if we live in a world in which people are solely seeing humanity as humanity's only hope. Human beings in general lack, uh, seek their security, rather, in a country's power. We see ourselves or the broader community of people as our own providers. We perceive as if Happiness and joy are totally dependent upon the aura we are able to create for ourselves. Now, I don't know if it's just me, but this part of the psalm which directs us away from trust in princes or away from trust in a son of man seems to echo loudly into the sentiment of our modern culture. Put that on the back burner for a moment and continue on with me through the psalm. Well, as I said, it begins with this call to praise, but then after the call to praise, the psalm begins uh, to almost immediately devolve into an exposition about the character of God, the attributes of God, which make him so praiseworthy. The central reasons given for God being worthy of our praise begins to be expressed more directly when verse 5 begins. In verse 5 and in verse 6, we are reminded that God is a creator who is personal and providentially engages humanity. In verse 6, where God is described as that great creator, he is described as the maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in the heaven. But isn't it interesting that the psalmist doesn't ever disassociate that transcendent creator God from the nearness of the same God to his people? The truth of the matter is, is that why God is transcendent, he is never distant. He engages his people. He engages into the lives of his people. The uh, designation here in the psalm, which speaks of God as being the God of Jacob, I think is really given to remind us of the sense of God's nearness, the way God has condescended to man. The story of Jacob on a whole reminds us how God walked with Jacob through all the days of Jacob's life. Much of the Jacob story, and I can't go into it all tonight, but much of it is a story that is teaching Jacob that the blessings of God in life need to be most known. 
And it's most known, as the story tells us, when it's found in trusting God. Our God is a God who was with Jacob, and he is with us. He is with each one of us in successes and in trials. He guides us through our life. He is our help, and he is a God who is faithful. He keeps faith forever, as it says in verse 6. You see, our God is a God who doesn't ever let his people go. He's created man, but he also condescends to covenant with man, to make a people his people. God even has condescended to keep our covenantal promises, the ones that our forefathers made to him when we break our promises. He sends his own son to die as our substitute to provide us with life everlasting. He does that because while we are all covenant breakers, he is the great covenant keeper. God is always the faithful one. He keeps faith forever. What follows the psalmist's introduction to the praiseworthiness of God, who has been extolled as both the transcendent God and the near God, the providential God, what follows that is a staccato list of what this great God does for those who are in need, which, of course, are all the more reason to give him praise. Let me sort of just recite the list in uh, these staccato praises that we find in verses 7 through 9. He, being the Lord, executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds, upholds the widow and the fatherless. All of that is said in those three verses. And all of those things are active actions by God, which on one level touch on the way God sustains humanity in an earthly life. When there is human injustice, God is the one who rectifies the human wrong. He is sovereign over justice. Where there is hunger, he is the provider of food. When some have been widowed and in need or when children are orphaned, God is also the one who upholds them. But at the same time, we should be aware that the things like injustices always abound in our world. Christians at times go to their death under the hard and heavy hand of persecution. Hunger is always with us somewhere, and sometimes that hunger can lead to death. The orphan is in need, might often be in physical need. And so although it's so true that all justice and provision is controlled ultimately by the hand of God, though he certainly does provide, he also sometimes takes away or he leaves one without his or her perceived needs being met. In the light of our knowledge of those truths, we should also fathom, then, that what the psalmist must have in mind is some greater spiritual reality related to the blessings of God than are mentioned. God is with his people even when injustice seems to prevail or if hunger is never filled. And I think the spiritual side of the provision of God becomes more apparent when we consider some of the other things being said in this section of the psalm. When the psalmist says in verse 8 that the Lord opens up the eyes of the blind, 
we really do become aware that the teaching of all the scriptures is telling us that there is a greater spiritual side to that. Yes, the God of the Bible, especially in Christ, was known to do the miraculous, providing physical sight at times to the physical blind. That's true. But the greater spiritual truth is that we all are blind men and women, all blind to our need for a Savior. But God opens our eyes to see our need. Blind, sinful people are given hearts to see Christ. The dead are actually made alive in Him. And we also read here that the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. You know, we are a people created to be dependent upon God. But the ultimate pride of humanity is the pride that says, I don't need God. Ultimate pride never bows. And all of us would perish in that type of pride until we bow down before him. Bowing down is an expression of true humility, our need and our dependence upon God. But when we bow down, seeing our need for God, he is then the one who is lifting us up. He exalts us. In Christ, we gain an eternity in glory. And what's more amazing is that it's even God who gives us the grace to do the bowing. As fallen creatures, we don't do that on our own. But he gives us a right heart, a right humility, and that is a humility that then leads to exaltation. We also read here that the Lord loves the righteous. We also eventually must come to grips with the fact that the only true righteous we have is one that's alien to us. We are only righteous because of Christ's righteousness, which is imputed to us by faith. So what we find here from verses 7 to 9 is this list of reasons to praise God. And on one level, it might be uh, seen as an impetus to urge us to praise God for our physical sustenance, his provision. But there is also in the words a reminder of a greater spiritual blessing that we have in God through Jesus Christ. He opens our eyes. He lifts us up. He gives us righteousness as ones he has loved. Now after all of that, all of that in those three verses, there is also one statement phrased in a more negative sense. We are also to praise God because the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. We should never forget that praises are to be lifted up for that as well. It's not that we necessarily hope that any of humanity remain enemies of God. We don't wish people to be counted among the wicked. But when those who have refused to turn to God face their judgment, well, God's righteousness is vindicated and it's shown forth and his pure righteousness is always reason to praise him. Even when his righteousness is seen most brightly in the judgment he executes against sin. So we have a psalm that begins with a call to worship. And it flows into an enumeration of reasons to praise. First, to praise God for his creative work and his covenantal intimacy with his people. And then the reasons given for praise turn more to the sustaining grace, which both has a physical side and a spiritual connection. And then lastly, the psalm announces in verse 10 that the Lord we praise will reign forever. He is God, 
and will be God to all generations of his people. God is being praised now for his eternal rule. Now as you think about that, go back to the third and fourth verses once again. The princes, the rulers of the world, they return to the earth. Their plans perish. But there is such a contrast now with the rule of God. It is a forever rule. Quite naturally it would be because God is a forever God. He is the perfect king. He is the eternal king, our eternal Lord. And certainly the God to whom all homage is to be owed. Before, when we looked at the beginning parts of the psalm, I spoke of how the psalmist encourages us to place no trust in those princes, to place no trust in the sons of man, human beings. And he encouraged that while saying that when it comes to the princes among mere human beings, that his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. Why trust in man? Why live as if in this world human beings are humanity's only hope? The psalm is rejecting that type of thought as pure folly. And it rejects it as folly because we have a praiseworthy God who reigns forever. We have a God who when he breathed his last to be entombed into the earth, well, he raised from the dead. In God, in Christ, we see a death that results in the fulfillment of his eternal plan, not a death through which his plans would perish. Trusting in humanity is folly. Trusting in God is eternity. How can we not praise such a God? Hallelujah. Let's pray.